Welcome to a University of Bath IPR policy podcast. And many thanks for this invitation to take part in an episode of institution building represented by the Institute of Policy Research. So I'm going to begin with two epigraphs. Uh, the first one, uh, 400 years before the second one. This is Machiavelli saying, when only the powerful propose laws, not for the common liberty, but to augment their own power, the state is corrupted and its foundations are undermined. 400 years later, um, Louis uh, 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 Brandeis, um, the Supreme Court, the famous uh, Supreme Court judge, said um, something in the same spirit, we must make our choice. We may have democracy, we may have wealth concentrated in the hands of a few, but we can't have both. These two epigraphs um, provide the starting point for this talk. I want to give um, a quick overview of the, what has happened to inequality in the OECD countries. And I am actually going to be speaking mostly about the OECD countries. Um, using the Gini coefficient, and by the way, the Gini coefficient is in many ways a very conservative measure of inequality. You could even call it a right-wing measure of inequality because it systematically underestimates inequality and increases in inequality. But in any case, it's the standard measure, conveniently enough. Um, and so this is what it shows. If you take the core of the OECD from the mid-'80s to more or less today, then the Gini coefficient increased in all of those countries, with one exception, namely Greece, because of the collapse in Greece in 2008-9. Um, Although the statistics for Greece are so unreliable that one really doesn't know what happened to inequality in Greece. Anyway, the basic point is that right across the Western world, inequality has gone up, and in most cases gone up a lot, um, as measured by the Gini coefficient since the mid-'80s. In terms of the present-day uh, geographical spread of inequality within the OECD countries, then of the OECD countries in Latin America and the Middle East, that's mainly Israel, um, are at the top in terms of ha having high genies. Then come the Anglo countries, <coughs> members of the OECD, then the European Mediterraneans, Italy, uh, Spain, Portugal, uh, then the Northwest Europeans, and uh, including Scandinavia, and at the bottom, the East Central Europeans coming out of the communist background. Um, so that's the overall kind of picture that we start from. Um, the second starting point is this strange uh, dog that didn't bark. That is, for economists, inequality has simply been a non-issue uh, for much of the history of the discipline. Um, and here are some quotes just to illustrate how, um, how seriously uh, economists ignore, wish to ignore inequality. This is Martin Feldstein, one of, the, one of the most highly respected economists in the United States. Income inequality is not a problem in need of remedy, 1998. This is Robert Lucas, Nobel Prize winner, also like Feldstein, professor of economics at Harvard. I love this one, of the tendencies that are harmful to sound, notice this word sound economics, the most seductive and poisonous is to focus on issues of, of uh, questions of distribution. And then my friend Willem Boiter said, and he said this in the Financial Times, in response to me in 2007, poverty bothers me, inequality does not, I just don't care. I had dinner with him some time later and I said, did you really mean that? And his answer was, yes, of course. Why should I worry what David Beckham gets? And that was the end of his interest in the question of inequality. So economists have systematically underestimated the costs, in particular, of inequality. And the one question then is why? And the, the, the answer has to do with a number of escape holes, escape routes so to speak, that economists have used to avoid engaging with issues of income inequality. The first one is this idea of the Pareto principle, um, which has been used for decades, even centuries, um, 
to avoid dealing with the issues. The Pareto principle basically says that if a change, a change in policy, uh, makes some people better off without making anyone else worse off, then economists can confidently recommend that that change be made in parenthesis, regardless of whether the compensation is actually paid or not. And by the way, notice that better off is uh, defined all in terms of the price system, that is, things which are internal to prices, so that externalities are simply such as, for example, envy, the problem of increasing envy as some people become better off even though no one else becomes worse off, all these problems are simply erased by the assumption that the only things that matter are things which are contained in prices or in incomes. So that's one escape route that economists have long used. The second one is just this fundamental neoliberal, as we would call it today, belief that the market generally optimizes efficiency and innovation and government intervention generally makes things worse and income distribution is simply a type of price system so by and large governments should not try and influence income uh, distribution. And the third one is that <clears throat> a standard explanation has been offered for the pattern of rising inequality that I showed earlier and that standard explanation goes under the label of skill-biased technological change. That is, with the ICT revolution and so on, the rewards to um, skills, skills at using ICTs um, have increased. And so uh, a gap has opened up, for example, between college graduates and high school graduates. And this is simply uh, an inevitable consequence of technological change, which actually makes everybody better off. So that increasing inequality is just a byproduct of a, a, a changes that are making everybody better off. And with this, economists' minds come to rest. No further um, explanation necessary. One of the fatal flaws, of course, in this whole way of thinking is that to conclude that from the fact that and this is surely true, that some inequality, by the way, I'm using IN as, a, as an acronym for inequality. So the fact that some inequality is inevitable and indeed desirable for incentive reasons um, uh, implies that more inequality is always better. I mean, that's an implicit assumption. It's implicit in the fact that economists don't examine at what point uh, in income is inequality is optimal. They just don't look at the problems of in increasing inequality, the costs of increasing inequality. Um, so that's a snapshot of how economists have treated inequality, or rather not treated inequality. Secondly, and closely related but different, um, is the fact that the World Bank has long ignored inequality uh, the flagship publication of the World Bank is the World Development Report each year. So the first one was 1978. Um, some uh, academics have done a word count going right back from 1978 to the present day in all that series of World Development Reports and found that while poverty is mentioned frequently, uh, words like inequality and income distribution are hardly mentioned in that whole run of world development reports. However, in 2005, something, something happened, which is that a small group of World Bank economists decided they, want, they wanted to write a world development report about in, inequality and development. And so they put a proposal to the board of the World Bank, which has to approve all the themes of the world development reports, um, they put a proposal to write one on inequality and development. And the board said, no. Um, the, the board said inequality is inherently a political concept, whereas we, the World Bank, are an apolitical organization. Um, poverty is apolitical. Poverty reduction is apolitical. So that's fine. But inequality is inherently political. Therefore, you can't write the World Development Report on <coughs> inequality and development. So... The, um, the, uh, the team went back and redrafted the proposal 
to say, okay, so we're not going to talk about um, inequality in the sense of outcomes, income outcomes. We're going to talk about inequality in the sense of opportunities to earn income. And the board said, okay, well, opportunities, that's apolitical, so you can go ahead and write one about um, opportunities, but that's called equity, but you can't talk about inequality. So if you read the, the resulting World Development Report 2006, Equity and Development, it's full of contradictions because these poor people, imagine yourself in their position, they were having to use a lot of evidence about outcomes, but to kind of pretend that they were really just interested in the distribution of opportunities. Um, the G20, uh, why here is income, standard uh, letter for income. So the G20 also studiously avoids talk of income inequality or indeed income distribution. For example, the recent uh, G20 summit in St. Petersburg, September. The communique was 12,000 words. I had the misfortune of having to read the whole thing in order to count the number of times that income inequality or income distribution were mentioned. And the answer is this, uh, pra practically zero. Um, in fact, I'll just tell you uh, um, an anecdote about the lead up to this summit. Um, a working group for the G20 proposed that the, uh, the, the kind of slogan for what the G20 was all about, um, the slogan being um, strong, uh, balanced, uh, sustainable growth, um, a, a, a fourth adjective should be added, namely inclusive growth. So strong, balanced, sustainable, inclusive growth. They even said, well, maybe you can take out balanced and put in inclusive. And so this proposal went to the G20 finance ministers and the G20 finance ministers said, no, 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 inclusive, that's, that's about social work. That's about social policy. And, you know, we are hard-nosed finance people, so we don't want to have any reference to um, in, the inclusive growth in our kind of... Um, uh, the summary of what we're about. And so this is just another example of how people, uh, including uh, these very senior ministers from the G20 countries, have simply steered right away from this issue. However, there are um, small <coughs> signs, recent signs of change. For example, the World Bank has recently started to issue some reports on income distribution. Um, at the annual meetings in Washington of the fund and the bank just uh, a, a bit over a month ago, um, um, the IMF, which has also studiously avoided the question of income distribution, sent shockwaves through the annual meetings, as reported by um, uh, a piece in the Financial Times, because some journalists discovered that buried deep in a technical paper with the innocuous name Fiscal Monitor Taxing Times, there was a statement that... Um, that uh, uh, that scope seems to exist in many advanced countries to raise more revenue from the top of the income distribution. This was a shock that the IMF could actually point to um, income concentration at the top as something of a problem which would then give scope for raising tax rates at the top level. This was considered just over a month ago as something rather shocking uh, and newsworthy. Um, and here's something else. The World Economic Forum um, published in 2012, the Global 2012 Risk Report. Um, and uh, it got um, from respondents, many respondents, to its global risk survey to score a variety of types of uh, risks over the next 10 years, economic, environmental, geopolitical, social, technological, as to score each type of risk in terms of likelihood and in terms of impact. And the top three risks that came out of that exercise, uh, combining both impact and likelihood, were chronic fiscal imbalances and the second one, severe income disparity. And then the third one, which was equal in terms of the score with um, severe income disparity, was water supply crises. So I was personally very surprised to see that these 
risk experts put severe income disparity um, right up there near the top. Um, I think one part of an explanation for why this very recent concern about the issue of income inequality is that um, for the first time, income good in, uh, data has become available on uh, income shares at the very top, like the top 1%. So we, that instead of using just the Gini coefficient, which is an average across the whole of the distribution, and so which reflects mainly changes within the bottom 99%, we can now see um, that um, in recent decades, the top 1% has simply soared off from everybody else. And uh, so it becomes very clear that we can't use the standard explanation that I mentioned earlier, that is skill-biased technological change. We can't use that to explain why the top 1% has been getting this vast accumulation of income and wealth uh, relative to the bottom 99% that explanation of skill-biased technological change simply won't work. So I want to go very quickly through some um, illustrations of what has been happening in a number of countries, beginning with the US over this long period, 1913 through to 2006. This is one of the most important charts you need to understand in order to understand the history of the world, not just the US in the 20th century. So you see uh, in the very sharp run-up in the share of the top 1%, this blue line includes realized capital gains. You see a very sharp run-up from 15% or so right up to 23% or thereabouts through the 1920s. And then the crash, the Depression, Second World War, Lyndon Johnson's Great Society and so on, through to the late 70s when the poor top 1% had gone from 23% in 1929 to only about 9% by the end of the 70s. And their anger at being squeezed in this way was partly helped to fuel the Reagan and Thatcher neoliberal revolution, which was brilliantly successful in the sense that the share of the top 1% from about 1980 then just took off and went up like a July the 4th skyrocket uh, to reach by 2006 roughly the same share as in 1929, and it is extraordinary that this happened in a stably functioning democracy. Um, and these figures are in, in really even more extraordinary. They show the share of the increase. This is the increase in national income accruing to the top 1%. During the socialistic uh, Clinton years, the top 1% got only 45% of the increase in the Bush years, 65%. And this is the most amazing figure of all. In these past few years, the top 1% has accrued 95% of the increase. And here's another way to look at the same thing. This is the, the ratio of the remuneration of CEOs to the median annual wage. In the US, for the Fortune 500 companies, that ratio, there are various estimates, but it's around about, it's over 300, the ratio uh, that is to say, the CEOs are getting 300 times more than the average wage. Uh, the squeezed, the um, badly off uh, UK counterparts in the FTSE 100 are getting only 185 times, and the even more impoverished German uh, executives are getting only 90, 90 times, which uh, helps to underline the point that the US is really off the charts. In terms of inequality within Remember, within the old OECD, I'm not including Chile, inequality is even more unequal in those new OECD countries. This is New Zealand. Just to make the point that the, the same kind of pattern has been hap happening in, uh, across the Anglo countries. Um, so this, this is in dollars, not in percentages, but in dollars. And it goes from 1984 th through to today. I'll just draw your attention. This is the median the median income, the income of the median household. So it's practically constant all through this period, 1984 through to today. And this is the income of the top 1%. This is the income of the top 10%, but this top 10% includes this top 1%. So it's the top 10% are going up partly because 
of this huge increase in the top 1%. So an enormous increase in, uh, in the share of income going to the top 1%. Um, and this, this actually does show the share from 1985. This was the beginning of New Zealand's great neoliberal revolution and it went shooting up. This is the fastest rate of increase of the top 1% in the whole OECD from 1985 through to the mid-90s. And then it kind of leveled off um, well below um, the US figure. Remember, remember the US figure was over 20%. In New Zealand it's under 10%, but with a very important qualification. These figures for New Zealand do not include realized capital gains because they don't pay tax. And secondly, these figures do not include um, in family trusts. And guess who has the family trusts? Um, the family trusts, income trusts, are held by the top 1% mostly. And so um, when uh, the figures, the percentages are adjusted to include realized capital gains and family trusts, then that percentage would be considerably higher. Um, this is um, Iceland, um, a country that, although it's classed as a Nordic country, uh, over the 1990s and 2000s very much aspired to be like the Anglo countries. And in fact, it was very, very successful in the sense that the share of the top, this is the US figure, more or less corresponding to what I showed you before, the blue line. And this is what happened in Iceland. The top 1% in Iceland shot up from the mid-90s from about 5% right up to 20% and then of course came crashing back down after the Iceland had the biggest collapse in national income of all the 33 OECD countries, bigger even than New Zealand and Greece. New Zealand and Greece had the second equal biggest collapse. Iceland had the first biggest. But still, at the end of the day, Iceland's top 1% are very well off. They're still getting 8.5% of national income, the top 1%. Um, and that this is just shows that basically the same thing in, in income, Icelandic krona. This is the top 1%'s income. This is the median, the median income. So you can see, again, a huge increase in the way that the top 1% lifted off from everybody else. But in, in the rest of Scandinavia, sorry, not the rest, uh, Iceland is not Scandinavia. Iceland is Nordic, but not Scandinavia. In, the re in Scandinavia, this is 1980, um, and basically what happened, the top 1% remained flat, with the exception of something odd happening in Norway. I asked many Norwegians what happened in Norway, and they don't know. But in any case, basically the story is that um, the top one share of the top 1% remained fairly flat in Scandinavia after 1980. And much the same is true of Germany, much the same is true of France. So the point is you don't need uh, to have this rapid, this big increase in the share of the top 1% in order to have a prosperous capitalist economy. So the bottom line from all this is that during this neoliberal period since the 1980s, the very rich have soared ahead, leaving behind not just the manual workers, but also the middle class masses. Now, so that's the first part. The second part of the talk has to do with the costs of um, income inequality. Um, and I'm not going to say anything much about the economic costs because they've been discussed in the literature in considerable detail, but clearly income, these, the kind of in, income concentration that we've seen in the Anglo countries um, was directly linked to the build-up of financial fragility, which then tipped into this great crash um, and slump that we're still living through. I will draw your attention to a terrific film called The Floor, um, the Floor, the title comes from Alan Greenspan's testimony to Congress in late 2008 that he had discovered a flaw in his ideology that had served him so well for the past 40 years. The flaw being that it turned out that the shareholders of banks would not always um, exercise uh, due diligence to ensure that their banks did not take uh, reckless risks. That was the flaw that he discovered. Um, and this film um, is a very uh, illuminating but also entertaining 
um, film about the relationship between rising uh, inequality, wealth inequality, and the financial crash. Um, the second thing I'm not going to talk much about, but is obviously important, social and health costs of inequality, summarized in the book um, by Wilkinson and Pickett, you can get some idea of a kind of general uh, uh, worry about rising in income inequality from the fact that this book has sold about 250,000 <laughs> copies since it was published in 2009, been translated into 25 languages, um, and has been quite criticized by economists. We could spend uh, quite a lot of time discussing the pros and cons of their evidence, but I will show you just one piece of evidence. Actually, this doesn't come from their book, but it's, it's shocking in the sense that it gives a really sort of tangible, almost eerie sense of how inequality, the level of inequality in a, in a society has very far-reaching effects on what happens in that society. So this is um, average male heights for um, men in these countries. Um, and this is the Gini index of inequality in various years, but recent years. And so you can see the relationship. The more equal by the Gini coefficient the country, the higher is men's heights, and the more unequal is, um, the lower is men's heights. The UK comes out as one of the lowest uh, countries in terms of average men's heights. The US is pretty low as well. And then these relatively more equal countries have considerably more uh, uh, taller males. And the difference is not trivial. I mean, we're talking about 180, 181 here, and down here, uh, 177 or so. So this is not a trivial difference. And then, then there's the question of what is the mechanism? How does this work? What is the relationship between levels of inequality as measured by this very unsatisfactory measure of the Gini coefficient on the one hand and average heights? And that's another question. Um, also, another thing to put under the general heading of social costs, the relationship between income inequality and social mobility. Um, I just said income inequality, but remember we're primarily interested in wealth inequality rather than income inequality. The problem is that we have much worse data for wealth inequality than we do for income. <clears throat> And the point, the, base, the bottom line is that there's an inverse correlation between inequality and the rate of intergenerational social mobility. Um, and I think the mechanism for that, and by the way, the countries with the low, of the core OECD countries, the countries with the lowest rates of intergenerational social mobility are the countries that most advertise themselves as having free markets, open opportunities, and so on, namely the US and the UK as compared to the uh, continental European countries, for example. The mechanism, I think, the, uh, uh, the core of the mechanism, at least, is fairly simple. Namely, that the greater the gains, the relative gains from being in the elite, then the more the elite will fight to ensure that their children stay there. In other words, the more the elite will fight to put a glass floor under their children. And uh, I, as the father of a 20-year-old, someone in his 20s and a daughter in early 30s, I'm damn sure I'm very concerned to put a glass floor under their um, social mobility as well. So um, one can understand why the elite fight to ensure that their children don't go down, and they have been very successful um, in, the income, in the unequal countries. Now, what I want to say more about the, and, uh, the, uh, is the political effects of inequality in particular because remarkably little research, so I discover, has been done on the political effects. And I think one part of the reason is that just as economists have taken as their center of gravity, the sort of central model, the idea of a, a smoothly working, self-adjusting market system, so um, political scientists have taken as their center of gravity model the median voter um, which model which says that governments are most responsive to the preferences of the median voter and therefore rising inequality does not tend to skew public policy towards the preferences of the wealthy because governments have to be responsive mainly to the preferences of the middle in democracies. 
That's the standard workhorse model of political science. And I want to draw your attention to two kinds of costs. Um, the first one is um, that there is a remarkable correlation uh, between income concentration now, so not the Gini coefficient, this is income concentration, share of the top 1% on the one hand, and on the other, political polarization and paralysis in the United States. And the evidence comes from this book called Polarized America, published in 2006. And this is the bottom line of their findings. So the blue line shows the share of the top 1%. It's close to the blue line in the chart that I showed earlier. Um, from 1913 right up to, uh, what is it, uh, 1998. That's the blue line, the share of the top 1% in national income. And the red line is um, an index of political party polarization in the US House of Representatives. I'm not going to go into the details now of how exactly they calculate this index, but they do have an index of polarization uh, between the Democrats and the Republicans in particular. And you can see that there is an astonishingly close correlation given that these are two very different kinds of variables um, between the two things. And then that raises the question of what is the mechanism by which you get from one to the other. And that's an open question, but um, w w one can presume that the implosion of the Obama presidency that we're watching every day now, this terrible uh, failure to get anything through in terms of uh, the health care reform, in terms of immigration, in terms of uh, gun control, in terms of the trade, agenda, and so on and so on. Just a litany of failures is because it, it's, it's related in some way to the figure that I gave earlier, namely this very, very intense income concentration at, up at the top, which then feeds through into very intense um, polarization between the parties such that they basically cannot cooperate. And as the failures go on, more and more Democrats are pulling away from Obama making it still more difficult. Um, I'll leave this PowerPoint here and I give an explanation of how they calculate that index. The second, so that's one kind of political cost. Um, the relationship between inequality and political paralysis, difficulty of making collective decisions such as, for example, collective decisions about climate change. The second political cost I want to talk about in a bit more detail, has to do with the way in which, as inequality goes up, the preferences of the rich increasingly determine public policy. And here I draw on a very recent paper by Benjamin Page, Larry Bartels, and Jason Seawright. Um, they um, use polling evidence to uh, determine the degree to which the preferences of the wealthy um, in this case, they're talking of people with an annual income of more than $1 million. The degree to which the preferences of the wealthy differ from those of the rest, or the general public. And so they pose questions, or they pose propositions such as this one. The legal minimum wage should be high enough to prevent full-time workers, full-time workers, from being in poverty and 40% uh, of the wealthy say they agree with that statement uh, as against almost twice as high a percentage of the general public say they agree. So there's a substantial difference in the preferences of the wealthy as distinct from those of the general public. The question that I'll come to, of course, is whose preferences shape public policy. Um, here's another example of differences. The proposition was the federal government should provide jobs for everyone able and willing to work who cannot find a job in private employment. And uh, only 8% of the wealthy agree with that, and more than half of the general public agree with that. And similarly, um, there are big differences on issues like, between the preferences of the wealthy and everybody else, on issues like the minimum wage, on the taxation of capital gains, um, on what the top priority should be, should it be reducing the budget deficit or uh, reducing unemployment. Um, 
and uh, also another big difference on the question of how should the budget deficit be cut, cut by cutting social spending or by raising taxes, um, and then what kind of taxes. Big differences between the wealthy and everybody else. Again, um, the wealthy tend to oppose health insurance for everyone. Uh, they oppose more spending on public schools and so on. Um, and so that's one question. How do, uh, on what issues and to what extent do the preferences of the wealthy differ from those of other people? Second question is what shapes the preferences of the wealthy? How do we explain the wealthy's preferences? And here I refer you to research by quite a number of social psychologists on the consequences of social class, that is the consequences of some having much more money than other people, other people that they interact with or other people that they know of. And the kind of bottom line conclusion that comes from this research, and you can find some of this research if you type in the name of Paul Piff, who's in the psychology department at Berkeley, the bottom line conclusion is that people living high on the socioeconomic ladder, having much more money than other people, tend to be less empathetic more selfish, they tend to regard other people as either aids or as obstacles to their ambitions than do people lower down. And of course, this is a generalization that applies to large social strata. It, it does not, is, um, is not meant to exclude the possibility of people in this top strata being exceptions to it, such as the obvious ones, Carnegie and Bill Gates and, um, and, and the others. Um, and so this research is sometimes referred to as the money, as showing the money empathy uh, gap. And just to elaborate that, let me um, tell you uh, something from a, a recent column by Paul Krugman in what was then called the International Herald Tribune, now called the International uh, New York Times. And he's, he refers to the man who is head of AIG the big insurance company that was bailed out by the federal government in 2008, got a huge bailout from the federal government. And um, uh, apparently Ben Bernanke, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, said that nothing made him more angry than the fact that the federal government felt obliged or forced to give this large bailout to a company that had really been reckless. Um, so then just recently, the head of this company, um, said um, that uh, this backlash that was going on uh, against giant bonuses paid to people like him, bonuses uh, multi-million dollar bonuses paid to people like him, this backlash was like lynchings that had taken place in the South all those decades ago. Lynchings meaning mob murders, particularly of black people. And he said, What's going on by way of this backlash against bonuses um, is just as bad and just as wrong as lynchings were in the South. So um, basically many of these people at the top are behaving like sociopaths in their relationships with um, other people. And that all comes out of this research by um, these psychologists. Um, here's an example of the money-empathy gap in action, so to speak. It's Paul Ryan, one of the most powerful politicians from the in the United States, who said, we don't want to turn the safety net into a hammock, I love this word, hammock, that lulls able-bodied people to lives of dependency and complacency. This is the great, great fear on the part of the Republican right, that the welfare state makes people dependent and complacent. And here's much the same sentiment expressed by the current New Zealand Prime Minister, John Key. Anyone on a welfare benefit has a lifestyle choice. If one budgets properly, one can pay one's bills. So there's no case for increasing any welfare payments. If you can't pay your bills, it's because you're living irresponsibly. Um, so that's the second question. What determines the preferences of the wealthy? The third question is, whose preferences shape public policy. And this is um, the finding of Martin Gillens uh, in a paper in 2005. Actually, he's just published, or fairly recently published, a book called Affluence and Influence, uh, where he elaborates these findings. But 
basically what he concludes is that when there is a difference in the preferences of the wealthy compared to everybody else, then actual public policy outcomes strongly reflect the preferences of the most affluent and bear virtually no relationship to the preferences of poor or middle-class Americans. So at a stroke, he blows the median voter model out of the water, so to speak. And he goes on to say, this vast discrepancy in government responsiveness to citizens with different income levels stands in sharp contrast to the ideal of political equality that Americans hold dear. Representational biases of this magnitude call into question the very democratic character of our society. It's a very shocking statement. And so you can summarize um, these findings by economic policy is made by the top 1% for the top 1%. It's particularly ironic to use this phrase, today of all days, because today of all days is the 150th anniversary of Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, where he used a, a rather uh, similar phrase uh, with... Uh, he used the same basic kind of construction to make a very different point. And you can see, for example, if you track things like the minimum uh, wage, uh, the minimum wage fell in real terms, um, fell very substantially. Um, the wealthy have no interest in the minimum wage, or certainly no interest in linking it to the cost of living index. Um, another example, in late October, this is under Obama, 20 uh, of this year, in other words, just a short time ago, 47 million Americans had their food stamp benefits cut. And the Republicans are very determined to do this for the reason that Paul Ryan gave, namely food stamps and other such benefits lull people into a life of dependency and complacency. What about UK and Europe? The evidence I've been talking about comes from the US. And I've asked, I'm not a real political scientist, um, I've asked my colleagues in the government department at LSE about equivalent UK or European evidence. And to my astonishment, they don't know. And so this is Simon Hicks, who has an office just a few floors below mine. I asked him, what is the evidence on representational bias in the UK and Europe? And he said, to my amazement, gosh, that's a really good, uh, really good question. I haven't thought of that. It sounds like something I should work on. Thanks for the idea. And I've asked David Soskis. I've asked several other people. And my bottom line is, if you guys are not working on this, what are you working on? Because this, this is, seems like a blindingly obvious subject to be working on. Um, I think, though, one can get a little way in answering this question. You would expect, we could hypothesize, that this representational bias in favor of the wealthy uh, would be higher in majoritarian voting systems, such as the US and the UK, and lower in proportional representational systems. Um, but on the other hand, um, there's some evidence, uh, so I'm told, that even in Northwest Europe, in Holland, for example, the representational bias in favor of the wealthy and away from the low-income groups, that, that bias is increasing even in proportional representation systems such as in Holland. And across the OECD, you see um, that um, yeah, the countries with the largest increases in the shares of income in the top 1% have also seen the largest cuts in top tax rates, which again is consistent with the idea that the preferences of the wealthy are driving a lot of um, public policy. So the bottom line is that um, as inequality increases, or to be more exact, as concentration, income concentration increases, the rich make it harder for the non-rich to have a voice in how society is run. But to kind of do it in the way that I've been doing it, 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 it misses out a lot. That is to say, to take to say what are the preferences of the wealthy on these, these, and these issues, and then what is actual public policy, it misses out a large part of the problem. And that part of the problem is captured in this uh, rather unfortunately ugly word, superversion, not subversion, which is attack from below, but superversion, attack from above, the superversion of the state. I'm taking this word from George Monbiot. Um, 
uh, and basically what's, what you see is that some billionaires are attempting to destroy the basic functions of the state um, to really cut back on any sort of state obligations to citizens, to cut back on the idea of citizen rights. And I'll just draw your attention to this book. This is book is called The Hollow Men, and it's subtitled The Study in the Politics of Deception. It's based on a whole cache of emails, like uh, a kind of Edward Snowden-type release of emails from the leader of the New Zealand National Party, that's the Conservative Party, um, who took over the National Party in 2003 on the promise that if he was made leader, um, he would solve the money problems of the National Party. What he did not tell the caucus that voted him as leader and displaced the previous leader, who was known as a compassionate conservative, what he did not tell the caucus, and certainly did not tell the public, was that he was operating on behalf of a group of about 12 super-rich New Zealanders, most of whom were not members of the National Party, and half of whom lived overseas in Australia or in Geneva or in Washington or in London, but who had a very hard right-wing agenda. And they wanted this, uh, the National Party under the hopefully uh, uh, next Prime Minister, Donald Brash, to uh, carry out their agenda but it all had to be hidden from the public because they knew that the public would never support the National Party if it knew that that was what they were planning to do. And this book des describes in some detail how they went about this strategy of deceiving the electorate. It makes riveting reading. The uh, author is named Nikki Hager, H-A-G-E-R. It was published in, in 2006. Um, so that's a kind of that's the underwear politics of how big money uh, op uh, uh, operates to get its will through the democratic political process. Here's one question that I'm really puzzled about. We see all this increase in inequality, income concentration, and the question is why are the middle classes? Why have they been so apathetic? Why are they not enraged at the way the top one percent has been? has lifted off and, uh, and with the result, of course, that incomes lower down, including their own, are squeezed. And I'm not going to delay uh, in order to go into that issue, but I do think that it's a really interesting question. And again, when I've asked my political science colleagues what's the literature on this, they shrug their shoulders. They don't know. Um, but we can talk about that um, later if you wish. Because what I want to talk about is what I think um, the, the social democrats or the center-left, if you will, should be doing in order to improve their electoral prospects. Because, um, of course, as is very obvious, um, the left has not gained in the hard times that have descended since 2008 across the advanced countries, the center-right continues to win, and this is partly because the centre-left seems to have lost its political narrative, so that voters who are angry, who are enraged, are going off to the far right or the far left and not supporting what you could call the mainstream left. So the first point is that the centre-left, let's say the Labour Party or other such parties, should be giving much more focus than they have been giving on income concentration, not just the Gini coefficient, not just inequality over the whole thing, but specifically the concentration of income right up at the top. Um, and they should be highlighting how a wide array of institutions, policies, uh, rules favor this process of income concentration in the hands of people who are already affluent. One of the good sources of um, information about this process of income concentration is, is Dean Baker, such as this book, The End of Loser Liberalism. If you type his name and the title into Google, you can actually get the PDF of the book. Um, and he, basically he shows that many institutions and policies which are presented to the electorate as good for efficiency, good for economic growth, are in fact good mainly for channeling income um, up to the top in a disguised kind of way. Um, all kinds of um, 
rules institutions uh, are configured to have this effect of concentrating income up at the top. I mean, quantitative easing, for example, just take this one case. It turns out that um, um, something like um, over 40%, 42% of um, US uh, public bonds that is issued by the government to finance itself um, are owned by the top 1%. And that figure in the 1970s was well under 20%. So it's the concentration of ownership of these government bonds in the hands of the top 1% has gone up greatly. And the point is that the interest payments on these bonds are practically tax-free. So this is, represents an enormous flow of tax-free income up to, um, up to the top. Similarly, house bubbles, um, uh, stock market bubbles, um, these have a very powerful income-concentrating effect and so on. Corporate governance law, trade union law, these also have an income-concentrating effect. Secondly, um, focus on the, the centre-left should be giving much more focus to the costs of inequality in a way that economists have conspicuously failed to do. Um, and to use these costs, the costs of rising inequality, as a sort of central line of attack on the conservative agenda. The central line being that conservative policies and institutions are having the effect of, of favoring the already affluent. And so that means, amongst other things, uh, giving up the center-left tactic that was particularly pronounced during the Blair years we won't talk about income outcomes. This is the same story as in the World Bank that I related before. The centre-left in Britain, for example, said, we won't talk about outcomes, we'll talk about opportunities, improving opportunities. Um, and that, I think, is a great mistake. The centre-left has to be talking much more about outcomes and underlining the costs of the um, unequal outcomes, the increasingly unequal outcomes and also, of course, the costs in terms of intergenerational social mobility. In fact, um, it occurs to me that just as we now take for granted that um, investment projects, infrastructure projects, for example, should all have environmental impact assessments, then um, we should institutionalize some mechanism for having regular, just automatic assessments of institutions' policies new proposals in terms of their likely uh, income distribution effects. So as to make this issue of income distribution much more explicit than it has been. And the third main point is that the centre-left should avoid the conservative characterization of them as being pro-state. We, uh, you, the conservatives say, you always want to boost the state. You want to increase public spending um, in the interests of the disadvantaged, which means that conservatives say to the electorate, we are pro-freedom and you are anti-freedom. And that actually carries quite a lot of weight in voters' preferences. It's a kind of subliminal message which is quite attractive. So, and then next comes this point. It's really a bringing together the previous points. The centre-left has to be talking more about um, pre-distribution, to use this voguish word, and less about redistribution. Um, I went to a meeting at LSE, this was a few years ago, um, about the future of the left in Britain. And there were five people on the panel. And for the whole time, like one and a half hour session, practically all of the five, with the partial exception of Will Hutton, talked only of redistribution, that is, only of issues of taxation and public spending. Uh, so they talked about the public sector over here on the assumption that what was happening in the, in the private sector, on the assumption that corporate governance law, that trade union law, that patent law, and so on and so on, uh, monetary policy, exchange rate policy, all these things were fine. They were left to the market. And we should just focus on uh, how to reconfigure the tax system to give more um, help to, to single mothers or something like that. That was what they all talked about. Ignoring all these issues, all these mechanisms in the private sector, which I talked about before, which are having the effect 
of channeling income upwards. And so that's what we need to be paying much more attention to, the pre-distribution, that is, the factors that determine the market distribution before taxing and spending. Why? One reason is because the distribution of post-tax and spending income outcomes is mainly determined by the distribution of market um, incomes. That is, welfare states uh, or state redistribution generally is relatively weak in countering the effect of big inequalities in market incomes. That's the first reason. The second reason is because if the central pitch of the center-left is we want to use taxes to redistribute income away from those people on high market incomes and give it to those on low market incomes. This um, makes it easy for conservatives to attack, saying that you, social democrats, you on the center-left, you want to penalize winners and the successful, and you want to reward people who are failures in life. And again, this has a certain resonance, in, especially in the middle classes, and so it puts the center-left on the back foot. That's why it's important, that's another reason why it's important to shift the focus much more to questions of predistribution. And just quickly, two more points. Um, present big finance as a problem, not as an industry to nurture. I was shocked to hear Mark um, Carney say that um, whereas currently the ratio of bank British bank assets to GDP is, a, is four times, we can expect by 2020 or sometime like that that it will rise to nine times. This because banking is Britain's comparative advantage. That would be a catastrophe because of the way in which a large financial sector distorts and makes fragile the rest of the economy. Big finance is a problem. Um, UK banks are lending four times as much to property and financial asset markets, four times as much as they're lending for the production of goods and services, and much the same applies in other countries. And of course, big finance is dominating politics. Um, and finally, political finance reform. In a way, everything I've said is just sort of written on the sand until we can reduce the role of big money in politics. The problem is it's proved very, very difficult to do it. And ex exhibit A of the difficulties is the fate of this report from the UK Commission on Standards in Public Life, published in November 2011, Political Party Finance, Ending the Big Donor Culture. So this is a big, thick, glossy report. Um, a lot of time and effort went into writing this report as to how to reduce the influence of big donors. It was launched at Westminster with all kinds of VIPs and the press and the media in attendance, and it died on the evening that it was launched. Nothing more has been heard of it to general relief on the part of the political parties, including the Labour Party. This, this issue of political party financing is really um, the third rail. Um, I've been talking about ideas changing the ideas with which the centre-left appeals to the electorate. Now, of course, if it was true that the elite has a monolithic, uh, is monolithic and has a unified vision, then there's little prospect of these ideas getting anywhere um, in terms of uh, the centre-left winning political power. But as those uh, figures, that I, those, as those percentages about the preferences of the wealthy and uh, the rest of the population, as even those percentages indicate, the, the elite, the top 1% or so, is not monolithic. That is, if, um, say, 70% of the um, elite oppose the minimum wage, that means that 30% of the elite are in favor of the minimum wage, or at least you can interpret it that way. So the point is the elite is not monolithic, and the Social Democrats, the center-left, has to appeal to segments of the elite, and then this whole top-down strategy that I've been talking about has to be complemented with a sort of bottom-up strategy of creating what Eric Olin Wright calls real-world utopias, that is, establishing niches which operate on a non-capitalist basis, uh, niches which, operate, which do not operate 
on the capitalist principle of no profit, no production. And so that means things like uh, worker cooperatives, that means things like uh, Wikipedia. Wikipedia is a classic communist, uh, communist institution, communist because it's um, supply in according to need, not according to money. Similarly, public libraries are in the same sort of category. Um, and so on. You can, you can construct, the, the, uh, you can find many examples of real world utopias, that is, niches where activity is not organized on a capitalist basis, and the question is how to expand these out and protect those which are already there. Thank you very much. <laughs>